All right, thanks for joining us. So we've got the FATF and the Threat to Bitcoin Privacy panel. So my name's Stefan Levera. I host a Bitcoin podcast. I also work as part of Swan Bitcoin. I'm just going to quickly introduce our panelists today, and then we're going to get into the discussion. So firstly, we've got Patrick Hansen from Circle, recently joined, and he's uh, done a lot to talk about uh, the impact of various regulation on Bitcoin privacy. Uh, we've got Kevin Merko from Coin Metro joining us. We've got Shores Provost. Uh, he's a Bitcoin Core developer and also a Bitcoin podcaster, also uh, hosting the Bitcoin Explained podcast. And uh, finally, we have Matt O'Dell. He's a Bitcoin privacy advocate uh, and an educator and a podcaster hosting uh, the Rabbit Hole Recap and also Citadel Dispatch. So... First of all, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're going to start with some background and some introduction. For, for a lot of people, they may not really be clear. Firstly, who is FATF and who made them king? Uh, do you want to start, Patrick? Uh, yeah, that's quite a task. And, and, and first of all, thanks for having me, Stefan. Uh, it's super cool to have a Bitcoin conference uh, of that size here in Europe. Um, yeah, so FATF. The FATF is the Financial Action Task Force. It has been launched in 1989 uh, by the G7, actually. Um, and it has been launched by the G7 member countries together with the EU Commission and a couple of other countries. And has grown quite a lot since. So I think it has by now 40 member countries. And th through some regional associations, it covers almost every country on Earth. And what the FATF was launched for in 1989 was basically to streamline... Um, to streamline activities and initiatives around um, the fight against money laundering. And so it basically started, I think, in 1990. So one year after, after it was founded, it created its first recommendations um, to all the member countries on how to fight money laundering. Later on, I think 10 years later or so, also recommendations on how to fight terrorism financing were added so those recommendations were basically updated every couple of years. And why is that relevant for Bitcoin and, and crypto? In 2019, so basically three years ago, the FATF, for the first time, uh, published a guidance on how to treat virtual assets. That's how the FATF treats Bitcoin and, and other crypto assets, on how to treat those from a money laundering perspective. And um, without going too much into the details, part of those guidelines included to basically add the travel rule for crypto as well. The travel rule is a rule that says whenever funds are transmitted between service providers, financial institutions, the personal information that belongs to the customers of those institutions has to be passed along from one institution to the other. And this travel rule has basically been expanded to crypto assets like Bitcoin. So nowadays, uh, according to the FATF travel rule, if one crypto asset company, an exchange or a custodian, um, if a customer of that custodian sends Bitcoin to another custodian, what has to happen in the background is that personal identifiable information like the name, the address, the wallet address, for example, has to be passed along from that custodian to the other. And obviously the FATF, so last sentence, 
Those are recommendations. Um, but if you don't follow those recommendations as a country, you end up on the FATF gray list or blacklist, which has severe consequences on you know, the economic and financial system of that country because banks, financial institutions, companies will basically stop working and collaborating with the companies in those blacklisted countries. So, yeah, it, it has quite some implications. Um, yeah, it's quite a heavy penalty and punishment, and it, it puts us into this world of financial surveillance. Now, I actually wrote an article on FATF recently and for Bitcoin Magazine talking about this as, a, as an issue. Uh, what are some of the issues from a human rights uh, perspective here? Well, I mean, I want to jump in here because I feel like I feel like FATF has the advantage that when when you talk about them, it just seems extremely boring. But 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 at the core, you know, at the core, the, these regulations and 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 the burdensome compliance measures that they result in uh, do not stop criminals from from using Bitcoin or using dollars in a criminal way. They get around it. They figure out how to get around it. What it does do is it puts law-abiding, honest people at risk. It stops them from interacting with the financial system. And pretty much, as far as I'm concerned, this panel can be summed up with they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> right on. Got it. So when it comes to building products and services then, what impact does this have on the ecosystem? Uh, perhaps, Kevin, do you want to chat a little bit about the impact? You know, so I share a similar sentiment, but I, take, I, I look at it from another angle. So I come from traditional finance, so I've been dealing with FATF, uh, not, maybe not since 1989, but, you know, 2000, 2001. Uh, you know, the, the issue with, the issue with regulation in general is it exists, unfortunately, and I guess in meant some small case, fortunately, but it does exist. And so... My outlook is always the same. I want to change it. I think we have all the tools. If you talk about the Bitcoin network, you talk about blockchain in general, we have all the tools we need to actually get rid of most of the cumbersome regulation about sharing of data, about public data, about uh, semi-anonymous or pseudonymous data. It's all there. The issue is it's just like they didn't understand crypto in the beginning. They don't understand the technology. Everybody, I used to go into regulators' offices, and they would say, I'd say, uh, you know, crypto exchange. And they'd say, ah, crypto, no, well, blockchain you know, good, crypto, bad. Uh, but they still don't understand how those two things work, you know. And unfortunately for us, our, our big thing that we push all the time is access. And yeah, FATF and, and many other things with regulatory bur burdens kill access. I got to be honest with you guys, the difference between traditional finance and crypto, you'd be hard set to find one. You name any product in crypto, DeFi, doesn't matter. I can name you the equivalent in traditional finance. The big difference is access. And the way we lose that difference is that we sit on the outside and complain about it, you know, fuck FATF. Uh, but saying fuck FATF doesn't stop FATF. In fact, there's going to be some guy with glasses behind the keyboard somewhere that's super pissed off hearing that, and he's going to try and drive additional change inside FATF that actually doesn't help us, it hurts us. And so the, for me, the way I look at change is I try to do it from the inside. So I talk to those guys. I tell them what I like about it, what I don't like about it, what's bad, what's good, why it's going to work, why it won't work how it doesn't work in traditional, how it works in, how it's not going to work in any nuanced uh, finance product either. Um, so I think we're in agreement, but yeah, I, unfortunately I can't walk into the, you know, talk to regular and say, oh, before we start, 
you know, fuck Fatif and fuck what you guys do. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily work, you know. Part, part, of, part of their effectiveness is that people who run regulated businesses have to censor themselves when they talk publicly about it because they're afraid that their livelihood is going to be put at risk. They essentially have guns to their head. So what, what does that mean? What that means is we have tons of money in this space. We have all these, you know, massive companies that have grown up in the Bitcoin industry, and most of them cannot publicly talk about this at all. That's why it's very rare you see any conversations about FATF publicly. Yeah, I, I, I talk about, I think, you know, there's a way to talk about things. I think, like anything in life, man, when you have a conversation, you have to understand who you're talking to. Uh, the, the thing is, is that most regulators actually, well, not most, let's say many regulators want to understand. They actually, there are regulators that do want to understand. There's legislators that want to understand. But a lot of the biggest people with the biggest soapboxes in our industry, they run away from those people. Or, you know, they, they try to publicly defame them. And the issue is we're all humans. So if I want something from someone, I'm going to do everything I can to make that person do what I want them to do. And doing that from the outside in, in kind of a, you know, in a certain type of narrative has never really worked. I mean, you, anybody ever heard of e-gold? Not the new e-gold, but e-gold back in yeah. the day, the doctor from Florida created e-gold. Yeah. Well, where the fuck is e-gold now? Gone. Now, one reason, big reason for that, it was decentralized. If it was decentralized, it might still exist. The other reason is, is that everybody that used it basically ran away from any type of rules that would, that would potentially have allowed e-gold to still exist. And it's, you know, Bitcoin wouldn't be here if it wasn't decentralized, that's for sure. But you got to remember that, you know, financial landscapes are made, regulated ones, are made with gatekeepers. Banks are gatekeepers into traditional finance. And guess who the gatekeeper is into crypto? Well, it's wallet providers, it's exchanges, etc. Those are the gatekeepers. So no matter how great we build these really cool infrastructures and how we, you know, build layer twos and we do all these great things, there's still a, 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 a way that, you know, regulation can hurt, maybe not kill, but hurt our industry. And so I, for me, I, I don't see... You know, public, we can, I mean, I, I, can get, I can say anything to a regulator. I just put it in a different vernacular. Let's put it that way. And I have no problem talking about it publicly. If there's a regulator in the audience, you guys want to talk about how ridiculous FATF is and how it's not going to work and how the, the, the travel rule doesn't work in traditional finance either, that it's caught less than like a nano percent of actual criminal money, we can talk about that over some coffee. Absolutely. Ra raise your hand if you're a regulator. <laughs> they could be on the live stream. Don't, get, don't be embarrassed. <laughs> Um, sure, we haven't heard from you. So let's um, hear from you a little bit, uh, your perspective uh, in terms of how you know, building out uh, software in the space as well looks like under this FATF and AML regime. Well, so far it's pretty peaceful. Uh, just to, like, to put it in this way, you know, if you look at something like Bitcoin Core, I don't see pull requests coming in that say, you know, we're going to implement a travel rule or such things, but you want to make sure it stays that way. So I think uh, it is important for the software to remain completely neutral and to be good for the privacy. And so far, that's not a problem. Although, you know, we have seen recently with Ethereum, uh, their mixing service where a developer was arrested. We still don't know exactly why. So there may be more going on, but it's at here, least yeah. the, the yeah. public... Well, not uh, here, but. No, he's in Amsterdam, somewhere around here. Uh, probably uh, not, not a nice building like this. He's actually probably not in Amsterdam. Anyway, um, I mean, the public prosecutor on their website and in the press releases, as well as the police, are communicating that they are opposed to his development work. At least that's the way I interpret it. 
but maybe that eventually goes to court and turns out there was something else going on. Uh, but that is quite concerning, of course, if you're not allowed to work on, on software. But then I would still say, well, okay, then I guess you move to America or some place that has stronger free speech protections and you're still okay. So as a software developer, I'm not immediately worried. Um, but you know, where you see something creeping in is, for example, this, this protocol that was designed to verify your address to right. an exchange. AOPP. Um, yeah. Do you want to just explain for people who don't know what is AOPP and what was the... Uh, I, th response I, I think the gist of it is uh, some exchanges require you to prove that the address you're showing them, where you want them to send the money, that it is your address and not some random guy on the internet's address. And so the way you would prove that in the Netherlands, the rule was eventually you just send them a screenshot of your wallet. Now that's actually quite bad because that reveals exactly what wallet you have. Uh, which some hacker will then eventually be able to, you know, they, they, they get the data from the exchange and they know where you keep your Bitcoin. Um, so this protocol would, get a, would avoid that problem and it would also be more user-friendly. What it would do is it would basically have your wallet sign a message using the private keys of your wallet. And then it would send that message back to the exchange. And there were some technical issues with that, but mostly there was a, a lot of um, debate around it more from a philosophical or slippery slope kind of view. Like, do we want a feature like this yeah. in wallets? Should uh, Bitcoin application developers be helping in this thing that impinges, uh, arguably, on the user's privacy? But in this case, there was a lot of community debate there because I think on one hand, people were saying, well, it helps them self-custody, but at the cost of reduced privacy. And so I think that was where certain wallets... Uh, put that feature into their wallet, and some of them actually walked it back. Yeah, but what I would say is that the general feature of signing messages with your wallet should be, in my opinion, uncontroversial. So I wouldn't go as far as saying, let's remove all message signing functionality from wallets, although some people have suggested that. So um, I'm, I, you, can, you can have the argument that you want to make things so technically impossible that that's the way you resist regulation but then you're removing functionality that people might need for very reasonable things. For example, you may want to test that your cold storage actually works. Um, yeah, of course. And, and for that, message signing is useful. Things like that. Um, talk about so, mass so adoption, we definitely, I mean, there's <laughs> trying to create, you know, I remember back like the, the ICO days, right? The, the most complicated white paper got the most money. Not because it made any sense, but for some reason people equated like complicated things to mean good things. Uh, and, you know, we still have a learning curve, in, a learning curve issue in crypto. Uh, that, that's just, that's just the people in the room, maybe not, maybe some, yes, I don't know. Uh, but around the world, man, crypto is not, it, 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 the learning curve, and some way because the way we market crypto, we make it seem like it's so nuanced and amazing and innovative. And those things are great from a, from a selling standpoint. But then people are like, well, I don't, I can't even, you know, I can't even turn my blender on without blowing a fuse. I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not going to do this. And so I think, you know, signing, signing is definitely fundamental and there's no reason we should get rid of signing. And you made a joke actually, via, I think it was via email about Craig Wright. You tell Craig Wright about, you know, signing wallets. He probably needs that information more than anybody else. Absolutely. Yeah, so signing doesn't matter, right? It's about witnesses. But, uh, that might be a bit too much inside baseball. Yeah. So like I said, the, this is not happening yet, but I think in the very long term, what I'm worried about is something along the lines of you have white Bitcoin and black Bitcoin and exchanges will only touch the white Bitcoin and they will not touch the black Bitcoin. 
and this white and black is defined by, you know, is it fully compliant with all every regulation on the book? Uh, you know, is, is your Bitcoin now just registered with the European Union? That sort of stuff. Yeah, that's the gatekeeper. And then that would still happen at the exchange level. But at some point, maybe they start putting pressure on miners to say, well, you shouldn't mine transactions containing any of that. Then they find out that it makes no sense because if you don't mine a transaction, it just goes into the next block because some other miner will do it. So then they'll push for, well, you cannot build blocks on top of all the blocks. And so eventually you might get regulators pushing for a fork in that direction. That's sort of my worst case scenario that I would like to not happen. Um, I, I would just echo that while, you know, maybe trying to change things from a regulatory perspective, that's more of about, about finance and services. When it comes to the technology, uh, God forbid that they try to regulate the technology. I mean, obviously, there was a push to regulate the Internet at one point. <laughs> that would have been comical. Uh, maybe not now. It wouldn't be so comical now. But at the time, it would have been funny. Uh, and and that's, that, that is definitely a road nobody in this room, anybody, forget about private. If you're a privacy advocate, if you just simply like uh, to be able to you know, own your own bank, all these great things that exist, decentralization, et cetera, you do not want the last resort for regulators to try and go and regulate the technology. Yeah, but then China has regulated the internet quite successfully, so it's not yeah. physically impossible. If you look at the phone network, you know, the Netherlands is, I believe, world champion in phone, uh, phone wiretapping, like yeah. the most wiretaps in the world per capita. Maybe not anymore because it's pointless with Signal and WhatsApp. Um, but it's not, not every technology cannot be captured by regulators. So just, so just saying like, okay, Bitcoin is impervious to harm. Nobody can destroy it. Let's just sit back and chill so and, we, we and let them try. We don't want them to go down that road. I.e., we don't want them to try and regulate the technology. Well, there's two things. You want them, yeah, you can have people lobby so that they don't even try, which, you know, is nice. And you also want to make sure that if they do try, that you have some way to make sure they don't succeed. Right? Because yeah. you can make a completely centralized currency, like, I don't know, Ripple or something like that. And you can say, well, just pretend we're Bitcoin. Just treat us like we're decentralized and neutral and don't attack the protocol. And then maybe they won't because, you know, I haven't seen any attacks on, on protocols from regulators. Even oh. protocols that would be very easy to attack. But I mean, you, uh, you mentioned it earlier and it, it bears repeating since we're in the Netherlands, like Alexei Pertsev created one of the best privacy tools on Ethereum. It had massive volume and they threw him in jail and they won't let him out of jail. They call him a flight risk because he owns, he owns Ethereum and we can't prove how much Ethereum he owns, which they could say to any single person in this room. He also owns a Russian passport. But yeah, but I, if he yeah. goes back to Russia, he gets drafted in a war. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Well, politics. All I'm saying is that's how, that's how, you know, you can go down these deep, you know, theoreticals about how they could try and make some kind of protocol level censorship. But, but, but in the end, yeah. all you really need to do is what we're seeing happen, which is you put guns to certain people's heads, you make an example out of them, and the majority will over comply as a result. And we already see, we see exchanges blacklist collaborative transactions right now. There's no law that says it. There's no absolute regulation that says they have to do it, but they over comply as a result. Yeah, I, I mean, that, not to call not you out. That's arrest. also a business decision. But we had, that's business risk. Yeah. We, had, we had, you know, Circle has USDC, and as soon as the tornado cash thing happened, I mean, I know it's Ethereum, but at the same time, like, it's, it should be a learning experience for all of us. As soon as the tornado cash sanctions came out, they froze all the, they froze all the USDC that was connected to tornado cash. 
So what exactly are we doing in this industry? What is, what is the goal here? Is the goal actually freedom? Or is the goal to just you know, rebuild a TD Ameritrade and put crypto on top? I, I think there's a bigger, I think the bigger question to me is, we build all this really cool stuff. Let's say we get to the day, we take a canoe, we go up a river of shit, which is basically regulatory. We get them to finally figure out that they, we don't need them anymore. We, and it's all functioning great. You still have you know, power grids, you still have the internet, you still have pieces of the infrastructure we need, because we're not building the underlying infrastructure. We're building on top of it. All this is a layer two, three, four, five, six, seven. You know, this isn't a true layer one. So in, in that sense, no matter what we do, we are still at risk. I mean, that risk doesn't go away. Because if they can, you know, they, power grids can be controlled. Access to power grids at some point, will, well, it can be controlled now, but more and more as they get more digital, they will be controllable. Uh, internet, as in China, et cetera. So, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the gold bug, the whole Peter Schiff thing, like gold is better than Bitcoin. It's not. Right? But, you know, if shit hit the fan and all your power went out, <laughs> well, you know, good luck with your paper wallet, uh, you know, running around. So we, we always have that risk. That risk doesn't go away. And so how do you get around that risk? How do you show that this can actually function, reduce crime, reduce the illicit movement of funds? How do you do that by just kind of saying, you know, well, yeah, we're not going to deal with you guys and everything you do is wrong? Most of the stuff they do is wrong. I'll agree with that. And, and, and it's usually proven wrong after five years, 10 years, 15 years. The goal of everybody in this room should be to help prove that wrong now. How do you prove it wrong? So what's uh, the best way then? What's the best? You know, is it, you know, I guess, is it regulatory appeasement? Is it ideologically just making that case? Is it lobbying? Is it lawsuits? Like, what are some ideas? What are things? Is it open source tools? And yeah, your and open source development. Using your own node and opting out of the system. Yeah, you can also live in the woods in Montana. I mean, but, you know, that's, everybody that's bullshit. Like, that's like, <laughs> you're gaslighting me on that. That's a straw man argument. At the base of the discussion is really the separation of, you know, what has been mentioned here, the technological base layer, open source software, protocols. And then on the other hand side, you have just, you know, financial institutions that offer centralized financial applications to, to customers all around the world. And I think, I, I feel like we have to clearly separate between those two and it's important to note here that we're talking about the FATF, for example, and its recommendations like the travel rule. Those recommendations only apply to financial institutions. They don't apply if I, as an individual, individual um, want to transfer some Bitcoin to another self-custody wallet, the travel rule doesn't apply to me. And I think it's super important that we keep that distinction. And I think we all agree that the technological base layer shouldn't be regulated it should be open source, and the market should decide freely on, on, it on what... It needs to be about choice, right? But, you know, it was a joke, but, you know, people move it, so you can move to Montana and a little off the grid. That's great. You should have that choice. But this separation between custodial and non-custodial is a political choice and is the result of some very good lobbying by mm -hmm. people in the industry to say, oh, wait a minute, before you regulate all of crypto, please make the distinction between custodial and non-custodial. Try to understand. And that, that distinction was pushed into at least the European level in 2015-ish, but that distinction could disappear tomorrow if Macron says, you know, uh, no, like, we don't like this Bitcoin. Uh, we also want to regulate unholstered wallets. So then, and then, you know, if you look at the Amsterdam situation, again, it, I, I don't know how to interpret what happened. I only know what they're saying in press releases. That idea that you can, you know, build whatever code you want and share whatever code you want, that may hold or it may not hold. Well, I mean, uh, I don't know if, you, if it was accidental or not, but you said the word unhosted wallet. 
Oops. Which that I'm alone, so sorry, you may cancel me. No, no, yeah. I'm not going to cancel you over it. I love you, Source. But the, the thing is, like, that's a perfect example. So unhosted wallet was not a term a year and a half ago, probably, or two years ago. They implemented that term. They pushed that term forward to essentially start this narrative that a, a regular Bitcoin wallet is, a, is, is, is different is, is, is hosted. A regular Bitcoin wallet is hosted when really it should be you have a Bitcoin wallet and then you have an account at a financial institution. Those I, are the two distinctions. I, I think that's but they fine, start but with that think, narrative. I don't think that was a conspiracy to change the narrative. I think there was a lot of confusion in terminology and they just, instead of saying wallet, which means uh, your own keys, they say, no, let's make it or clear what we, what we mean. I mean so, well, I mean, the, but, yeah. yeah, but the term custodial is confusing and when it's translated into other languages, because remember in Europe, these laws are translated in 20 different languages. Absolutely. So the Dutch word is like bewaar uh, portemonnee, <laughs> which is like savings wallet, which is an even stupider name. <laughs> uh, yeah. I even wrote to those people, like the regulators, like, please use a different term. They did not listen to me, which yeah. whatever. My yeah. point is, is it starts with the narrative shift, right? Like. So if you've been in Bitcoin for any period of time, it used to be that no exchanges had KYC, right? And then around like 2016-ish, we basically saw it like sweep through, sweep through the whole industry. And previously before that, it was, oh, I'm using a Bitcoin exchange. Your normal thought was it's not going to require personal identifiable information. I'm not going to have to give all this intimate info to the exchange. And some exchanges did, and those were the KYC exchanges. That was not my now, first experience. Yeah. Okay, I, fair enough. But now when someone new comes into the space, it's the exact opposite. When someone new comes into the space, they assume that they're going to scan their face and give their blood of their firstborn. But if, if you're doing something other than that, then you're going out of your way. It's no KYC, right? I'm, I'm like, it's almost implicitly law-breaking is, is the insinuation there. Well, this gets you into the level playing field discussion, right, where people would say, well, the, the legacy financial system has this too, it, and I think it has seen an increase in KYC also over the decades. Um, but then the question is, at what level should the playing field be? And you could say, well, maybe banks should be, you know, should protect the privacy of their users better uh, instead of uh, crypto companies uh, protecting it less. So you can have that discussion too. I think that's, that should be had, but it's not had. And I guess that comes back to FATF as well, right? Because arguably what we have seen over the decades is each crisis comes, ah, there's an opportunity now to take some more control. Ah, the new recommendation, ah, look at this area that could be unclean. We need new recommendations, therefore new regulations. So then FATF will then push these things and maybe in some cases it happens at the country level, pushing it onto other countries, saying, oh, look, we're, we in the US or we in whatever other country, you're not doing enough, to, quote unquote, enough, right? Despite the conversation about ineffectiveness of a lot of these things. Effectively, what happens is FATF have pushed more and more and more, both in the fiat world and in the Bitcoin uh, exchanges and Bitcoin businesses world. So it, it just comes back to, that I think that that's like a root cause thing. And I think ultimately w w there has to be some kind of pushback about the idea of it's not that not everything should be surveilled. Yeah, I, I think I should be able, I always use this example. Like if I go to the bathroom at the train station right now, if I pay with my uh, card, debit card, these records are kept for at least a decade. So the bank can actually look up 10 years from now exactly at what time I went to the bathroom. 
I think that is ridiculous. I think everybody would agree that's ridiculous. So, you know, I don't, th you know, I think we should change the financial system to, to not do that. And with normal banks, it's very different, difficult to not keep records because they actually need to know, you know, what, what your, uh, how much money you received, how much you spent and where you spent it. So it makes kind of, it makes almost necessary for them to track it. But with, a, uh, say, a lightning wallet, you don't have to track that information. So if I could just use a lightning wallet to pay for the bathroom, then nobody needs to know who I am they, because there's no fraud risk for them. Uh, not that anybody commits fraud when entering a toilet. Um, but <laughs> maybe. guys jump the turnstile. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the technology is inherently more private, I would say, than at least legacy electronic money. Yeah. And while we're on, oh, sorry, go on. No, I, yeah. just, I just wanted to add that, you know, compared to the traditional financial system where basically if I move funds from one financial institution to the other. If we didn't have those kind of rules, AML rules, like the travel rule from, from the FATF, it would be kind of a black box where those funds are coming from, where those funds are going, if those funds were commingled with whatever kind of criminalized uh, activity in the past. The difference with crypto assets, Bitcoin and others, is that we can basically use the native tools that are inherent to the blockchain in order to, to combat money laundering, terrorism financing way more effectively than with some of these more traditional rules. And I think if we are able as, as an industry to, to communicate and educate um, you know, the policymakers and the regulators on those issues, and my strategy wouldn't be to go in the room and say, you know, fuck, fuck FATF, but you know, go in and try to educate and, 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 and discuss and really try to to get a good grasp of, of, of what the reason is for those rules and how there might be better alternatives with this, better, with this newer technology. I think we have seen also some better results. I mean, in Germany, in the EU, now um, the policymakers have moved to a more risk-based approach for transactions with self-custody wallets, for example, we, where they prescribe that those... Um, centralized companies have to use blockchain analytics, for example, when they transact with self-custody wallets. And only if those blockchain-native analytics tools flag a high-risk, high-ML risk, for example, those companies have to move forward with more... Um, I, yeah. I, I think many of us still have here, issues with the surveillance companies. Like, so go yeah, on, yeah because yeah. what you're really doing here, and not you, but this, this way of thinking is, we have this, this black box called the surveillance company, or called the, uh, you know, the analytics company, if you want to use a euphemism. <laughs> um, they will do things, and then only give a signal if there's, a, if there's something bad, and then a, a human will look at it. But, it. but the thing is, you're already being surveilled, so whether or not you get flagged just means you get more surveillance on you, but you're already being surveilled. And this is the same with banks, right? They have all these systems that monitor transactions and that look for irregular patterns. And so the narrative would be, oh, we're not really surveilling you. We're only checking suspicious transactions. But you had to look at the transactions to decide whether they are suspicious or not. So the surveillance is already happening at that level. But it is pseudo-anonymous surveillance. 
not. Not with banks. They it, just have well, your no, banking account. No. These, these yeah. companies, like you mentioned, that are these black boxes. It's, it's pseudonymous when they're doing it, but they're aggregating all the data, yeah. and it's just one click of a button to make it not pseudonymous. Yeah. I, I, and I, I think don't forget there's all this data sharing as well. There, there's, right? an, there's an interesting point to be made in that. So I, I live on both sides, like fiat and crypto, right? Because obviously running exchange, I come from traditional finance. And what I'm seeing now is scary in the sense that when you look at sanctions as they come out now, we just had a sanction that came out, I think, last Friday, an additional sanction about Russia. There's one rule for banks, and there's a very much more stringent rule for crypto exchanges. And the re that's, it's a there's a very clear reason, and it's not a rational one. It's not because there's some inherent heightened risk with crypto. It's not because crypto can be laundered easily than fiat money, because it can't. It, the reason is, is because the narrative. So not only do we need to control the narrative to spread adoption, we need to control the narrative to make sure that, you know, if the, if the end goal is that uh, the travel rule and all these things become automated, and I agree that, not, I, I'm, not, I'm not even generally agreeing with the travel rule, but at the end of the day, those things can absolutely be done with the technology we already have. The problem is, is we have to get there. And if we, if we continue on this same path where our narrative like, when, when I, if I go to a regulator and I talk to a regulator, I always hear about the same three or four things. Obviously, whatever, there's like uh, criminal, the money on, on the blockchain. They look at the Chainalysis report that says it was 15 billion worth of uh, criminal money. Uh, but, but they don't pay attention that the, the market grew 560% in the same year uh, because they only focus on 80% more, more criminal money supposedly going through the blockchain. And the reason, and so that, that narrative gets to the regulator. And the regulator points out kind of the memeable aspects of our industry. What about this guy? Did you see what this person did? What about this guy in South Korea? Did you see what, what was that? What about this? And so we, we, we need to not only be drafting a narrative or creating a narrative about how to get more people in and create adoption and, 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 and make, make a more powerful group so we can combat these things. We need a better narrative about how we deal with you know, regulators and how we deal with legislators. That, and that, that's a, we have a terrible narrative right now. Like how many times somebody's coming uh, and, and, and everything they have in their mind about Bitcoin is, or, or crypto in general, but even just Bitcoin is going to be like, you know, El Salvador. I don't know everybody's opinion on El Salvador. I think it's great that somebody stepped forward and did something, but it's a meme. It's a meme. And it doesn't help that, that narrative of trying to get regulatory kind of oversight out of Bitcoin. All they want to do is jump in after that because it's memeable. Well, I think Highly they're, they're, the thing is people are always looking for opportunities and if it's an opportunity for them to take more power or control because it's a crisis, they will. Yeah, so yeah, I think part of it comes down to have to like actually fighting that ideological point, like the principled point of financial surveillance. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't be putting people, innocent people at risk. Look at the Celsius doxing. Um, and now, okay, that could be debatable because it was part of a bankruptcy proceeding, etc. right? But nevertheless, those customers had to be KYC'd and their real first name and... The, the amount of however much you know, coin they had and the transaction history was doxxed. Yeah, which in this case wasn't too bad because now you know exactly who doesn't have any money. But, uh, <laughs> well, you, you know, similar to the on-chain uh, history and then see if they still have money. No, they wouldn't. Anybody I mean, because you have, they, they had withdrawal times and deposit times and exact amounts. So you can connect that with the chain surveillance companies. You connect that with that, and then you can see on-chain activity. And presumably not everyone at Celsius was using it with all of their money. Uh, so they only got partially rugged and okay. fully yeah. doxxed, but partially rugged. <laughs> so the point is, why should all these innocent people be put at risk? And there's another example in Australia, Optus, the second largest telecommunications company, 
had 10 million customers with their name uh, and address in many cases was doxxed and for 2.8 million of those customers had their passport or driver's license number doxxed, meaning they are now at risk of identity theft. So, and that wasn't even a hack, they just had that on OpenAPI. So there, there, there's, there's a debate there as well. I think the Optus CEO came on that. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> they're storing all this data. We've created this culture and normalized it. Should we not be pushing back on the normalization here? Should we not be trying to uh, right. create a, a better system that doesn't put so many innocent people at risk? And I the mean, risk is different for, for people... Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go for it. Yeah, I was going to say, the risk is different for the people uh, in the legacy financial system than for crypto holders, right? Because if you're holding Bitcoin, you know, that's a physical attack potential. Whereas if you have a bank account, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. You have to kidnap somebody's kids or something like that to, to extract that money. Um, so the level playing field argument there doesn't really hold. But on the other hand, if it does hold, I would say it's also bad when a bank leaks. Because if, say, ING with millions of customers leaks 10 years of transaction history, you can see everybody's salary, everybody's spending habits, everybody's tax payments. That sort of stuff would be pretty bad, too. Yeah. But you were saying. No, I was just going to say, as you mentioned, I think we just have to propose and suggest better, better alternatives. And the, the alternative cannot be, you know, we just don't do anything. Um, because that's not going to happen. We, we won't have, you know, a globally connected financial system um, without any form of political or regulatory oversight and, and supervision. And that's what I'm saying. We should try to, to, to change the narrative and, and try to use those blockchain-native tools to better combat uh, anti-money laundering. And I think we have, we have quite a good amount of arguments on our side. If you look at you know, how effective is AML under the current frameworks, there's even the United Nations Office on, on Drugs, and crime that I think two, two years ago or so um, published data saying only 0.2% of basically laundered funds are seized by law enforcement. So I, I think the data is on our side, the technology is on our side, but we have to move forward as an industry and propose and suggest those alternatives. Otherwise, um, uh, otherwise uh, in my opinion, we're, we're not uh, going in the right direction. Let me I throw mean, a gun. I mean, you make a good point that we haven't discussed, right? I mean, I, 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 like, I like having financial privacy, you know? And, and I don't think money laundering is generally the biggest thing that I'm worried about. But, you know, I have three daughters, and there's human trafficking, and there's shit that does get paid for. Now, how much, how much we want to say it doesn't, it's a very small percentage, but it happens. And so, you know, you, you either live in a rule with rules or you live in a world with no rules. The thing is, is that you, people you know, want to be in the room, so to speak, virtually, when those rules are drafted, right? I don't, I don't want to be on the outside and have them make a rule that destroys my life without having a say, you know? Democracy sounds really good on paper. It doesn't really work in real life. There's only a few people in that room. And so being outside of that room doesn't, doesn't put us at an advantage at all. And there are really bad shit. There's really bad shit that happens in the world that is financed via money and digital money as well. I mean, it, it happens. The only reason we're sitting in this room, to be honest, is because the initial adoption of Bitcoin was tied to a lot of criminal activity. Not anymore. The percentage is real low now. It's, it's, you know, it's a decimal point. Uh, but in the beginning, it was not a decimal point. It was a whole number and a pretty big one. Uh, and so, you know, at, at the end of the day, the, if, I mean, I don't know if anybody in the audience, like, does anybody give a, a care about human trafficking and, you know, I don't know, illegal arms sales, all these things? Just somebody's got to care about it, right? I mean, we all want our financial privacy, but at the end of the day, 
you're going to give up something, unfortunately, because, you know, that's the world we live in. And human, human beings are great, and generally I think most humans, you can trust them, but if there's no rules, even good people do bad things. I think for me, it's not saying there's no rules. I think it's more just about the right way that the policing and the law enforcement should be carried out. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's, there's this conversation of, you know, get a warrant as opposed to this kind of mass surveillance uh, without uh, where we are all just perpetually being doxxed, <laughs> whether what, it's companies leaking our stuff or whatever. What, what, what about the Cloud Act? Anybody know about the Cloud Act? No? no. So the Cloud Act allows the U.S. government to go and get information out of any server that's tied to a U.S. company. So that means that all you, everybody running their nodes or whatever on AWS, even if you're running them out of Amsterdam, the UK, whatever, the US can roll in and grab that data, no warrant, nothing, anytime they want. That's what I'm talking about, infrastructure. Well, you that's know? why it's important to be able to use your own node and uh, make it as metal accessible as possible yeah. rather than running on the cloud server. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but most people... Most I mean, I think you run. accidentally made a very important point, which it is, wasn't accidental, is was that <laughs> is, is the solution here. The solution here is, and look, I, res I respect all you guys. And, you know, this is a, a movement of personal responsibility, personal choice. You guys can choose whatever path you want to choose. Um, I have zero faith in regulators pulling back on financial surveillance. I think it only gets worse and worse from here. And I think... I think the solution is open source tools that allow people to take back their sovereignty, choose that personal responsibility path, and opt out of the system. Because otherwise, we're just going to end up in a fully cap... We're already basically in a fully captured system through the collaboration of, of industry leaders. The problem is if you have to actively opt out of it, that's only going to be 1%. 100%. It'd be nice, be nice for more people, but I guess the, the other way is the... Um, um, you know, the touching the stove, I guess, argument that you make, like eventually something really bad will happen because of this financial surveillance, uh, Stasi-like event, and then maybe people will realize privacy is a little bit more important and then you get reform. Yeah. So I think cyclical. You know, Everything's cyclical. I mean, we will get to a point where it reduces. We're not there yet. So on right. that, I think this is another area. So we've only got about four and a half minutes left, but in terms of technology, because people talk about this idea of a cat and mouse game, right? So sometimes uh, people will find more ways to surveil, but then there'll be more ways to make things more private. So, and we're seeing this now with the Lightning Network, for example. There's work on Bolt 12 and blinded paths, uh, some of the taproot stuff, which may improve the privacy available to Bitcoin users. So I'm curious, Shores, if you've got any comments on what that does, do will, will that meaningfully move the needle such that the surveillance becomes less effective. So what I like about Lightning in principle is that you're not sharing every transaction with the whole world, right? You're only sharing it between you and, and the people you're paying. And it goes even further than that uh, with Lightning. At least, you know, there's some caveats, but we don't have time for those. If you pay somebody, they cannot see who, where the payment comes from. So if, if I buy coffee here, they cannot see that, you know, I have 10 euros worth of Bitcoin somewhere else. Uh, whereas if you pay if you pay coffee from like some giant wallet with on-chain transactions, they can see where it's coming from that there's more money there. So it's good to have privacy for the person who pays, and uh, vice versa. It's nice for the merchant to have some privacy too, so uh, their competitors can see how much money they have. But that's not yet the well. That also happens a little bit with Lightning, but then you can see which note you're paying to. 
Um, so if I pay if I pay a merchant, I can see what their node is. Then I can go on chain with some tools and see that node, how many channels it has, or at least some of how many channels they have. And so there are technologies in the works called blinded paths that you refer to, I believe, that will make it so that when you pay a merchant, you don't actually see what their node is. You get an intermediate hop, and then it goes from the intermediate hop to the merchant through some route that you don't know. It's very much like how Tor works, where the, the person using a Tor browser cannot see where the end server is, and the end server cannot see where the actual user is. That's where we want to go. And, and that's, you know, that, that routing stuff is a pure privacy argument. There's no financial benefit to doing that. But the lack of on-chain transactions, there is a financial argument for that because it's cheaper to pay that way. So you're, because you're not sharing information with the whole world, you're not burdening the whole world with lots of stuff they need to store. And so that's one of the reasons why it can inherently be cheaper to pay that way. And that's a nice argument to have when a government says, why are you, you know, not showing all your transactions on the Internet for the whole world? It's like, well, uh, because I care about privacy. It's like, well, that's not an argument. You must be a criminal. Well, because it's cheaper. Oh, of course, that's perfectly valid. So it's, it's nice that the cheapest option... <laughs> well, uh, so that's, that's sort of the, the big-term trend that I hope to see, that the fact that it's cheaper and more private will get you there. But there's a ton of caveats, right? If you have a Lightning node... Uh, you put your own coins into that lightning node and with some, you know, some investigation, somebody might still be able to see where your coins are. This, this, you know, lightning is technically more difficult, all sorts of stuff, but that's for a different panel. But I, I think yeah. that makes me optimistic, more so than using mixers uh, that makes on-chain coins because uh, with on-chain, first of all, it's more expensive to use those on-chain mixers and it will get even more expensive if these goes up. And... Secondly, because if you make even the slightest mistake, you might still be able to look through what the mixer is doing. So I think, but, but you know, I, I encourage people to keep building those mixers. Uh, don't get discouraged by uh, by random technology people getting arrested. Win. I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to win. Well, which I technology? Mean, the freedom to, one or the surveillance? No, no. no. To be clear here, I expect in five years, over ninety percent, ninety-five percent of people that are using Bitcoin in the greater crypto ecosystem will be using it in custodial regulated wallets uh, that are fully surveilled and fully compliant. And I'm happy to focus my time on the 5% that aren't using that because that's where the real movement is. That's, sure. that's probably right, but I hope not. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we'll, yeah, we'll have to see how that goes. Uh, if you want to have a very pessimistic long-term picture, um, right now we need the Lightning Network because we cannot have super large blocks, but perhaps in 200 years we can have super large blocks and there would be no argument to use Lightning anymore and then everything would be on-chain and there would be no privacy and everything, every address would be on file. <laughs> so that's something to look forward to. That's 200 years from now. Yeah. Well, I think that's pretty much all we've got time for. So uh, can everyone please thank our panelists today? So Patrick, Kevin, Shaws, and Matt. Thank you. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you.